We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Father, thanks so much for this night that we have to be together in this room to sing these incredible songs. Um, This song that we just sang, prepare you the way to realize that those words were written more than 2,500 years ago and that you speak through them to us with just as much of an immediate presence as you did when you spoke them through Isaiah. God, as we now take a moment to listen carefully to what you're saying through your word, God, I pray that you would deliver us from the double blindness to which we were born. God, that you would deliver us from sin and from ignorance. And that you would enable us by the same spirit that inspired these words to take them into our heart and our lives. And that they would transform us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, how in the world... Can a person prepare for something that is as cosmic and monumental, as weighty as Christmas? I was talking with Sandy on Tuesday and she said, Aubrey, it takes me all Advent long to get my mind wrapped around the fact that God came in flesh. How can we prepare ourselves To really encounter Christ. How can we prepare ourselves to celebrate the fact that God himself, the creator God of this universe, was born of a virgin and and came into flesh to set the world to rights. to, To renew every square inch of this creation, to restore shalom, to restore goodness and peace and flourishing. How in the world... Do we prepare to celebrate something that significant? Now, think about this. I mean, if if you believe that, and I'm not saying that all of us do. uh, I do, and I know there are many in this room. But if you really believe that the sole, singular, only God of the universe limited himself, to the flesh of a baby. I mean, if, if you really believe that, then how in the world can, can you be prepared not only to mark that moment through a celebration, but to receive that same Christ into your life in a new way, in a fresh, in a powerful way? Madeline Lingle, very famous children's author, she, she wrote a book once called The Glorious Impossible, a children's book meditating on the nativity. That's how she, all she could do to wrap her mind around it was to jam two words together that don't belong together. The glorious impossible. How in the world can we adequately prepare to celebrate that? And not only to celebrate it, but like I said, to receive the real and tangible spirit of that same Christ into our lives in a fresh and powerful way. Well, These two passages that we've heard tonight, that's what they get to. They're not about Christmas. They're about preparing yourself 
to celebrate Christmas, preparing yourself to receive Christ in a fresh and new way, not only to think of him being born in a manger in Bethlehem, but to, but to receive him born into your life all over again. The first passage that we heard came from the book of Malachi. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. Malachi chapter 3. Now, this was written about 500 years before Christ was born. So we're talking, just to give you a historical frame of reference, this is about 150 years before Alexander the Great. Okay, This is about 75 years or so before Socrates was born. Um, When this prophet of Israel, Malachi, was speaking on behalf of the Lord, look what it says in verse 1. Behold, I, that's God, send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is that prepare the way. Now, Malachi is picking that phrase up from Isaiah, the passage that Robert led us to sing earlier. And God is telling Israel through Malachi that the Christ, the Messiah, will come unexpectedly and Israel must be prepared. But how do you get ready for this? How do you get ready for God to meet you, for you to meet God? Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? There's this famous scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy asks about Aslan, is he safe? And they have a series of conversations with Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver. And at one point in the conversation, Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. That's what Malachi is saying here. He's saying when the Lord comes, who said anything about safe? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. He is like a fuller's soap. Who said anything about safe? A refiner's fire. I mean, do, not, not just an any old campfire. We're talking about a crucible filled with gold immersed in a raging furnace until the gold becomes liquid and is leaping at the sides of the cauldron until the refiner can scrape off the top of this, this gold that is bubbling like water. This is not a safe picture of God. Look, look what it says in verse 5. I will draw near to you For s'mores? It's not what it says, right? I will draw near to you for judgment. What I'm saying is that preparing for Christmas depends on who you think it is laying in that manger. And that determines what you're going to do between now and the 25th. Preparing for Christmas depends on how safe and cuddly You've been conned into believing that baby really is. Safe. Who conned us? Who snookered us? Who has tricked us into believing there's anything safe about the day that we are hurtling towards? Now, 500 years later, that messenger that Malachi spoke about that was coming to prepare Israel for the Messiah, he shows up on the scene. This is what Fran read to us, Luke chapter 3. Skip down to verse 2. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Look, this season is for you and I to prepare. I thought about starting the sermon by asking you, if Christmas was tomorrow, would you be ready? You know, all of us have that fear. Holy cow, no way. You know, what are all the things you've got to do to get ready? Would any of us come up with the things that Isaiah came up with? Or would we have all automatically gone to what our culture says we need to do to get ready for Christmas? Which is what? Buy gifts and give out list of gifts we would like or whatever happens in your family. For That's what our culture says too to, to prepare for Christmas. It's to want and to consume and to enable others to do the same. You see, what you believe is lying in that manger determines everything about how you prepare. That phrase, prepare the way. We heard it back in Malachi 3. I I send my messenger and he will prepare the way. So how do we do this? How do you prepare to meet an unsafe God? A refiner's fire. The lie soap. That a fuller uses. Well, John tells us in Luke chapter 3, just like Malachi told us in Malachi chapter 3, one word repent. That's how we prepare. That's what we need to do between now and Christmas. Look again at verse 3 of Luke chapter 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Or the forgiveness of sins. Now, verse 4. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And rough places will become level ways. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. We like to jump to that last phrase, salvation. You see, if you don't read through the first part of that verse, you're welcome to define salvation in any way you want. John's purpose is to prepare Israel to receive the glorious impossible. And so he says, look, God himself is approaching. So creation should unfurl itself like a giant red carpet with pomp and honor and note his arrival. And John is saying to his listeners, you should do the same thing. You must straighten out the crooked places in your heart. In all the dark, shadowy valleys, they need to be brought into the light. In all the mountainous obstacles to your life, the obstacles that block the creator God of this universe from coming into your... You've got to clear those out of the way. You've got to remove them. That's what John was saying to Israel, and it's the same for you and for me today. We prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. And we prepare for Christ himself to be birthed into our hearts in a fresh and new way. And to be birthed into our church in a fresh and new way. And ultimately, we prepare for him to return for his second coming. How do we do this? Through repentance. Look at it this way. Last week, we saw that Christians have a distinct view of time and As a result, we saw some very particular ways that that works itself out in our life in in practical ways 
in the lead up to Christmas. But tonight, what we're seeing in the lead up to Christmas is that as Christians, those who are Christians, we have a unique view of what's wrong with this world. We, we claim, we confess, we believe and understand that the main problem with this world is sin. Sin. And, and, and until we embrace that and really feel the weight of that, Christmas will remain either stressful or quaint or sentimental. Until you come to grips with the fact that Christmas is about a problem, a particular problem called sin. Until you embrace that into your being, that's all that Christmas can be, either stressful or quaint or sentimental. But it will be far removed from the awful reality that this whole world and every person in it and every square inch of it needs a Savior. And that you and me, we need to be saved. From our sins. Now look, Christians have always measured sin by the suffering that is needed to atone for it. Christians have always measured the weight of sin by the depth of suffering needed to overcome that sin. The ripping and writhing of a bloodied body on a cross. For Christians, that is the weight of of sin. It's this bizarre metaphysical kind of maneuver in which death overcomes death. These things they they tell us something about the main human problem. That it's not a lack of education. And it's not a lack of of resources. That the main problem is a deep deep brokenness that runs through the heart. Of every individual. You see, whatever we genuinely believe about sin determines what we will experience at Christmas. As a Christian, Christmas is the 12 day long celebration from sundown on December 24th until January 6th. It's called the 12 days of Christmas. They wrote a song about it. And it's the time when we remember, in a focused way, the birth of Christ as the solution to this deep problem that I'm talking about. It's a time when we ask God to break into our lives in a fresh way, to be birthed in our hearts all over again. It's the time when we long in a unique way for Christ to return and to consummate his work, and to put away forever the powers of evil, and to gloriously restore our bodies to a new existence in the new heavens and the new earth. And through Scripture, God teaches Israel, and he teaches us that we prepare for that. We prepare for that same unsafe Christ to be birthed in our hearts and our lives again by repentance. But to repent. For that to be more than just a word that we kind of sit around and think about for a few minutes here. But for you and me to leave this room and to actually do that. We must 
take sin seriously. We must renew for some of us or for others, maybe experience for the very first time a genuine fear and hatred and grief over sin. Now, on a certain level, it is definitely um, pleasant to forget about sin. And this kind of message is no fun. And these kind of passages on a certain level are not fun. But we need to know that that pleasantness comes with a price and it is devastating to you. Self-deception about sin, one psychologist said, is a narcotic. A tranquilizing, disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. And when we no longer hate or grieve over or flee from sin, then the idea that the world needs a savior sounds quaint. Now, for us to listen honestly to what God is teaching us through these two great passages of Scripture, we need to patiently do more than sit and listen to me talk about them. We as individuals have to leave this room and we have to sit patiently in the refiner's fire ourselves, And we have to let him turn the heat up. And you can't do that with a busy. Do you see how what our world has done at Christmas is liable to rob you of what Christmas is all about? And we invented Christmas. The church did. And if you can't carve out space in your life over the next few days and weeks to sit before God and let him light the fire and blow the bellows on it. And let him bring you to a boil. then uh, you might have a quaint or sentimental Christmas, but you will not be prepared to receive an unsafe Christ. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is something very old-fashioned. I want to walk through the seven deadly sins. Seven sins that the church for centuries has said, this is the way to really get at the heart of the junk in your own life. Now, I'm going to walk through them, but there's a piece of paper in the back. It wasn't there when you walked in because I didn't want the, um, the note takers to get all excited and grab it up. And, and everything I'm about to say is going to be printed on there for you to take home and to um, grovel in over the next few days and week. Seven deadly sins the church has pointed out from Scripture. Number one, pride. Sinful pride. Not the kind of satisfaction you have for achieving excellence. Sinful pride, James says clearly, makes you an enemy of God. And it comes in two basic forms. Outward pride and inward pride. Outward pride shows up in the form of narcissism, vanity. Do you use the word vain anymore? Do you ever call each other to task by saying that's vain? That's a form of pride that makes you an enemy of God. And see, arrogance, snobbery, irreverence is a form of pride. Irreverence is the kind of pride that says, I don't care about the rules of this particular culture or this whatever. Disobedience, the refusal to admit and acknowledge your failures. These are all manifestations of pride. Then there's the inward pride, the kind that shows up in the form of distrust and perfectionism and sentimentality and presumption. Second of the seven deadly sins, envy. 
The heart of envy is being dissatisfied with who God made you to be. So you've got the suspicion that God is somehow withholding something from you that you deserve. And he's giving it to somebody else. It's when you wish that you were smarter or richer or more beautiful than somebody else. And when you get upset at another person's success or happiness. So, so jealousy is a form of envy. So is malice. When I wish ill for others and I delight in their failures. Contempt. Contempt is the form that envy takes when I heap scorn on somebody else's virtues and abilities. The third of the seven deadly sins is anger. And like the other two, it breaks out in a number of different ways. For some people, the sin of anger comes out in the form of rage. For others, it's more of a low-level walking pneumonia called resentment. St. Augustine identified another form of anger, a word we don't use very much today, pugnacity. He said this is when you're just generally a combative, quarrelsome, rude kind of person. You see the worst in every situation. For some people, their anger shows up in the form of retaliation or paranoia. The fourth of the seven deadly sins is gluttony. Gluttony, it's the overindulgence of your body's appetites, normally with food and drink. And here's how it goes. Gluttony operates off of this logic. If a little is good, a lot will be better. Whether that's with wine or ice cream. I'll move on very quickly. But gluttony is, it's about addiction to pleasure. But it's not only about pleasure, it's about escape. The fifth of the seven deadly sins is lust. The sexual libido is is a part of God's good creation, but like all of God's gifts, it's broken. And lust shows up in a number of forms. It shows up in unchastity. This is all sexual activity outside of marriage. Before you're married or while you're married, it's sexual activity outside of that. Another form of lust is immodesty. This is dressing and acting in ways that stimulate sexual desire in others. There's there's this verse in Proverbs 7 about the adulterous woman. It says her feet do not remain at home. And feet was a euphemism for genitalia in the Hebrew culture. In other words, she wears her sexuality in public. And it doesn't belong in public. Immodesty. Prudery. Now, this is a form of lust that the church has always talked about. It's the opposite of immodesty. It's the fear and condemnation of sex and sexuality Go on and on. Lust shows up in all kinds of forms. The sixth of the seven deadly sins is greed. And again, it shows up in lots of different ways. Avarice. Avarice is the inordinate pursuit of wealth and material things, either by honest means or dishonest means. Another form of greed that the church has always talked about, inordinate ambition. The drive. For power and status. To be ruthlessly competitive. Another form of greed that Augustine, again, centuries ago talked about. He he made up this word, I think, prodigality. He gets it from the prodigal son. Now think about how the prodigal son lived. For those of you who've read that part of the Bible. It's wastefulness. 
and extravagance, living beyond your means, failing to pay your debts, spending on on unnecessary things for yourselves while others go without, the pursuit of pleasures and comfort at the expense of the natural environment. And then kind of on the opposite end is stinginess, which is just another form of greed. It's when you hoard money and you're obsessed with security or image. The seventh of the seven deadly sins is sloth. Now, at its core, sloth is the refusal to respond to opportunities for growth, for service, and for sacrifice. See, there are lots of people who only think of sloth in terms of laziness. And they refuse to grow and they refuse to take opportunities to sacrifice. That's sloth. Now, it shows up on the spiritual side when we neglect spiritual formation, when we neglect times of the year like Advent, where we have a time where the church for centuries has said, hey, get ready, get ready, slow down, slow down, slow down, engage yourself in spiritual disciplines, read scripture, sit longer before the Lord in prayer. It shows up in our family, sloth doves, when we neglect our family responsibilities or when we focus on the more pleasant and enjoyable task of our job and we leave the things we don't like to do for others to do. Sometimes sloth shows up in the form of superficial busyness. You know, people like this, maybe you struggle with this. You get distracted with lots of little bitty things, but you're neglecting the weightier things. It shows up in some with an inordinate focus on rest and recreation and pleasure. Let me give you two other ways, though, that sloth shows up. Indifference to issues of injustice. Hey, and a big one here is our food industry. There's all kinds of information coming out about the agri-industrial companies and about the way Animals are treated. Now, Scripture says only a wicked man abuses an animal. William Wilberforce, while he set slaves free in England, he simultaneously started the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. He he said, I can't do one without the other. If, If Christ is the Lamb of God, then every lamb in some sense is the Lamb of God. It was created by God. And indifference to acts of injustice, whether it's to animals, and I'm not saying you have to become vegan or whatever like that, but indifference to acts of injustice, whether it's to people and animals or whatever, this is a form of sloth. Another form of sloth is cowardliness. See, When you refuse to do the right thing because you're afraid of pain or rejection, you're lazy. That's slothful. And Revelation says cowards go to hell. I mean, the Bible takes cowardliness that seriously. Now, as we're preparing for the return of Christ, and as we're preparing to receive Christ in our heart, what I'm saying, what what John is telling us here in Luke 3 and what What Malachi is telling us in Malachi 3 is that there are crooked places in our lives that have to be straightened out and there are dark valleys that have to be raised up and there are mountainous obstacles that have to be knocked down. And I'm saying that a good way to face up to this is to do what the church has always done. To sit before the Lord in the presence of the seven deadly sins of a list of them and to let God work you over. 
We have until Christmas. I'm not saying do it all tonight. I'm not saying do any of it tonight. Listen to what Malachi says in Malachi 3 verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterer, against those who swear falsely. And then he shifts from personal sin into social sins. Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I'm not going to go into all of these, but I just want to say when you sit before the Lord in the days and weeks ahead, it not only needs to be about personal sin, but it's also got to be about more communal sins. You've got to come clean about the way you are complicit in the treatment of those who are powerless. He's judging. And he gives four primary categories of powerless people. Day laborers. That's the wage laborers. The itinerant workers. The widow, the orphan, and the alien. And if we were to keep reading in Luke 3, if, if, if Fran had kept reading to us, John the Baptist brings up the same issues of how you your behavior impacts those who are powerless. Now, as we look forward to Christmas, and next week is about joy, by the way, but it'll be better for you if you don't take a shortcut. When we look forward to God breaking into our lives and we plead with God during this season, don't leave us alone. Please, God, interfere with our lives, break into our selfish behavior patterns and shatter our self-centered pursuits and soften our hard hearts. When we do this, listen, as Christians, we are not groveling in guilt. We are dealing with guilt. And that's a very different thing. Because if you deny your sins, you will never get free from them. Let's pray. Father, I, well, it doesn't feel quite right to say what I normally say. I thank you for your word, but, but God, I do. And I pray, Lord, that in the days and weeks ahead, we as a church would sit as individuals and as a group before you. And you would straighten out the crooked places and fill up the valleys and level the mountains so that we can unfurl the red carpet and to receive you properly into our lives all over again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.